today is just very, very different than what it was 10, 20 years ago. I think farmers have a lot more understanding and it really helps them make better decisions financially, you know, as well as environmentally. I remember talking to a grower, he said, you know, you can't really take your tractor out of the barn until you've done a software update on it. That's Suzanne Kemtrup giving us the download on how technology is helping farmers. On today's episode, we'll learn how technology is rapidly changing agriculture and how that will change your food. We'll also talk about innovations in the ocean, which is called blue tech. Clean tech isn't just helping farming, it's also helping fishing, our ports, and keeping the oceans cleaner. It's all happening right now on the Innovating to a Clean Economy podcast. You're listening to the Innovating to a Clean Economy podcast, a place where we bring industry, students, government, and academia together to drive collaboration for the clean tech economy. This program is brought to you by the UNC Institute for the Environment, and it's hosted by Kirsten Williams. Some people think we should call Earth Planet Ocean. More than one billion people rely on our oceans for protein. Did you know the ocean economy is estimated at $2 trillion? And it's growing at double the GDP for an average global economy. To learn more about BlueTech, we join Mark Wong, founder of Sea Ahead, a company focused on digital innovations related to the ocean, live at the 2020 UNC Clean Tech Summit. Morning. Can I ask if anyone, uh, if, or who has heard of BlueTech for the first time at this conference, the term BlueTech? Okay, great. I, I got 10 minutes to make an impression on you then. All right, here we go. First, just a couple comments about the ocean. One is, you know, some people say we should be called planet ocean, not planet Earth. 70% of the Earth is the ocean. Two, uh, every breath we take, every other breath we take is from the ocean uh, as far as oxygen, and the, the ocean is our CO2 shock absorber. Uh, another point is over a billion people on Earth still rely on the ocean for their primary source of protein. of global trade is on a boat or a ship. So what's the directory? Uh, And what we we as uh, humanity will continue to demand on the ocean. One, we'll just simply just look at population growth. Uh, The second uh, chart actually is a nonlinear effect on top of linear population growth. And that's the rise of of the global middle class, particularly China. The average Chinese today eats twice as much protein as their parents. So the trajectory as is, uh, what we're going to ask from our ocean, looks like it's going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more stress and a lot more acute. In the meantime, as well, uh, most of humanity, we live on the coast. What are the issues? One is coastal resiliency. There's acidification. We see about it in the news. We talk about it. This is the, many of you studied these issues. We're going to talk a lot about plastics following. Uh, jobs discussion, uh, and also a systems approach. What happens in the heartland in June, last summer, there's more flooding going on right now in Mississippi. What happened last summer, deep in the heartland, with flooding and farmer behavior and nitrates, and it basically shut down the whole Gulf Coast. Massive shellfish, um, marine mammal kills, and shut down their coast for um, during the height of the tourist season. So what's the, uh, the, the attention right now from Really, Europe is what we call the, has anybody heard of the UN Sustainability Development Goals? All right, it's not as well known in the US, it's almost gospel for some European companies, particularly from an ESG perspective. So here's a takeaway for the UN SDG Goals. You can look at all the numbers, but number 14 is what we hear, we hear this from the banks, we hear this from the corporates, like, 
We are trying our best to tackle every one of these using this UNSDG as a roadmap. We really have a lot of trouble with 14. 14 is the ocean. We don't know who to back up. We don't know what to do. So the question we've asked ourselves as a founder of Sea Ahead is what, what new paradigms can we bring? Uh, can we add another dimension to tackling ocean sustainability? And my background is about 15 to 20 years in clean tech. Cut my teeth really at General Electric and I was trained as a marine engineer. So the question is, well, back in the late 90s, when we first started to look at clean tech, when solar was $18 a watt, not 70 cents, where there was no uh, EVs on the road and lighting was still analog and not digital, could the technology cost curves enable clean tech? And the answer obviously is yes. So could blue tech today be where clean tech was 20, 25 years ago? So let's fast forward 10 more years. Roughly around 10 years ago, you started to have in the U.S., can't speak for Europe, this deindustrialization of our food system, right? We want to buy more local. We want to know what's in our food. We want to know how is it made. In parallel, you had a declining technology cost curve, so food tech, whether that be now alternative protein or bringing big data to the farmer or precision ag through drones and other types of sensors. So actually, more venture capital has gone into food and ag than in clean tech as of last year. So what's the question for blue tech? So on the seafood side, is that next? We as consumers going to start saying, how can you have all you can eat shrimp for eight bucks? You know, the answer is not very pretty, right? So uh, question also on what we view the ocean is we, we get a lot of feedback from, uh, we're, we're based in Boston. It's like, huh, we never thought about it before. And here, even though New England has a long, rich maritime sector, so some perceptions, right, of, of what the ocean, one, is one, it's just too big. It's the tragedy of the commons. Other than climate change relative to air emissions, you can argue it's the second largest tragedy of the commons. Some people think they don't associate economic development. People don't associate the ocean with STEM. You don't associate with part of the new, new economy. In fact, you actually negatively associate the ocean economy with not being sustainable. I read that every fish coming out of the ocean is not sustainable. Or it's just a play area for the wealthy where they keep their boats. So we believe today, um, blue tech, as I said, is where clean tech was 20 years ago or where food and ag was 10 years ago. What are the market drivers? One, you have global market demand. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about aquaculture. Two, you have more consumer awareness, particularly on the plastic side. Three, you also have a new wave of regulatory, particularly on the shipping and the ports. And we're going to talk about how the new regulations on shipping, particularly in the ports, is really a clean tech play. And then in the end, we have declining cost curves in other sectors. Market is starting to respond, just sample headlines. First one is BMW has a circular economy approach all the way to the ship that delivers their cars. Unilever to plastics, we're going to talk more about that. Seafood, a good part of the plastics that are in the ocean are from ghost gear. And then ports. Uh, the port of L.A. and the port of Long Beach actually are, contribute more spog to L.A. than all the cars double parked on I-10. So this is the money slide. So what is the investment thesis around blue tech today? First, aquaculture. Simply that number, 5.3% demand, we think is low. Uh, where the opportunities in aquaculture is, we go down and visit our oyster farmers up in New England, and despite all the tech that's in ag, we visit our oyster farmers, they pull the oysters out of the water with their lower backs, and they use a wax pencil to basically track what their operations are. We think that's low-hanging fruit, sorry for the pun. The other is a good, um, probably half of the ocean economy, the global ocean economy, is related to ports and maritime. There, the big plays is around digitization, like every industry, and clean tech. 
The other, we're going to talk, as I said, more on plastics. Just the biodegradable plastics is supposed to go from three to six billion by 2030. Smart city, if you ever study smart city, no problem today. Cisco will put smart LED street lights and count whatever you want to count. But we really don't have any sensors on and under the waterfront. So basically, it's a new angle of looking at smart city relative to what happens in a waterfront. So storm runoff, nitrates, pharmaceuticals, coastal resiliency. Wind, offshore wind. Anyone tracking the offshore wind? That offshore wind market is a party that's right here where we live from North Carolina all the way up to Massachusetts. The estimate in the next 10 years is a $70 billion spend offshore wind. We have a flat seaboard uh, plant, unlike California, which just drops off. We have high wind speeds and we have high population density. There, the, the focus right now is on capital expenditure. Our view at Sea Ahead is essentially that innovation side is how do you make the spatial planning digital? How do you reduce the operations and maintenance? How do you make it so that the fishermen have more data so they can plan around better how to go around these wind turbines. So our thesis is, is less D, more R. How do you take data science, bring it to the waterfront? How do you take clean tech and bring it to the waterfront? How do you take material science and bring it to ocean plastics? And then lastly, I'll, I'll conclude with this number, is the ocean economy is roughly $2 trillion today, not counting offshore oil and gas. The view is, is that it's at least growing at double the, the GDP growth for the average global economy. So we're excited about Blue Tech. We're going to talk a lot about the subsectors today, and thank you for coming. As we think about clean tech cousins that are driving the economy, another prominent area is ag tech. For sure, farming today looks entirely different than it did 10 years ago. Farming is robotics, geospatial technology, sensors, and modern breeding. This is the farming of today and the future. We caught up with Suzanne Kemtrup, who is an ag tech and startup consultant, and always thinking about ways to leverage science and technology to farm better. She's going to share innovations with us about precision ag, the impacts of carbon on nutrition, and ag tech trends on the horizon. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Would you give us a um, brief overview of who you are and what you do? So I'm the principal consultant at Fada Biotech Consulting. My company helps startup companies and university groups with strategic planning, facilitation, and technology assessment. I tend to focus in the ag sector since I've been working in ag tech for the last 20 years. Many of those years were at Monsanto when Monsanto had a presence here in Research Triangle Park, but also I worked at startup companies as well. And besides working now with the UNC Institute of the Environment, I also advise a, a company called Ag Tech Adventures. And there I provide leadership for a couple startup companies. One of them is called RX Maker, and it's in the digital ag space. And then the other is a company called Engagen, and they use ag tech to remove allergens from peanuts. So I work a lot with the universities and with startup companies here in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Sounds like there's a lot of innovation in pretty much all of those areas. Oh, yeah. So digital ag is cutting edge. That's an area where we're seeing the Internet of Things kind of growing. Another word for Internet of Things is digital agriculture or precision agriculture. And that's a really exciting area because this is an area where precision farming and precision agriculture enable growers to farm their land based on the variability that exists in the field. And it involves robotics, navigation, sensors, satellite imagery, information technology, geospatial tools. So, you know, any students who are out there in those areas, this is a really great area to get into. 
Um, but using precision agriculture then enables growers to dispense fertilizers and pesticides only in areas where it's needed most. And it also helps their bottom line. So it's, it's really an exciting area to be in. And so that's sort of really where, I guess, kind of the rubber meets the road there with the connection between clean tech and agriculture. Yeah, so that's one way to look at it. I mean, for years, we think about farmers as being the original stewards of their land. I mean, these are people that want to be able to farm their land for years and decades and pass it on. But with advent of technology and knowledge about the environment, we're learning about better ways to farm where we can um, do more what's called regenerative agriculture, which is where you can put, say, more nutrients back into the soil, keep that carbon in the soil. So I think in the last 10 to 20 years or so, the technology has been developing to enable people and farmers to do this. And so the intense focus on the soil is what we call regenerative agriculture. And it is going to require a lot of technology to measure and to use those measurements in a way that helps both the farmer but also the environment. And so you mentioned the Internet of Things, which it seems like every industry is sort of being transformed by the Internet of Things. And that constant change is really that drumbeat across industries. But Specifically with ag tech, what are some of the ways that things are changing for farmers and sort of what's around the corner for this Internet of Things? It just seems to be everywhere. It encompasses a lot. You know, you can talk about as little as sensors. So sensing wind and weather, uh, temperature, soil, soil uh, health. Um, so there's actually direct sensors that are used. And then, um, you know, you can also use satellite imagery and, and there's a lot of geospatial technologies that can be used. And a lot of these then need to be integrated into models that can then be presented to the grower on various platforms. And these platforms are either on their iPads, they're connected to their tractors. The farming today is just very, very different than what it was 10, 20 years ago. I think farmers have a lot more understanding uh, of their land, of their inputs, uh, of their outputs, and it really helps them make better decisions financially, you know, as well as environmentally. I remember talking to a grower, he said, you know, it used to be when it came time to harvest, if something was broken, you could go out and go in and try to fix what it was that was broken. But now, you know, you can't really take your tractor out of the barn until you've done a software update on it. You know, wow. it's very, very different, and it's pretty exciting. And to be honest, actually, one of my favorite things to do is when you go to the state fair or farm show is just to check out the tractor displays because the technology that are in those things, I think they're pretty close to the self-driving tractor right now at this point. But the technology that are in those um, machines that just make farming much, much more uh, efficient, it's very cool. And so when when we think about kind of all the changes and the, the technology that farmers now have access to, what are your thoughts about this trend and talking about carbon sequestration and carbon farming? So this, this concept of carbon farming or sequestering carbon, which is taken up by the sun uh, through the plants, that's photosynthesis, is to sequester this carbon into the soil. It's a, it's a relatively new concept. And basically, it involves, you know, using cover crops or using no-till agricultures. And there's other processes as well. It, and through these processes, it's possible to store more of that carbon in the soil and to keep it there. But to do this, it does involve changing what farmers do right now. And while in the long run, this 
sequestration of the carbon is going to result in healthier soils and better crops. In the short run, it could result in a profit loss for growers as they're changing the way that they do things. And so, you know, today, a farm, the margins for a farmer, it, it's just razor thin. And having another source of income from taking this carbon farming approach, you know, you would reward the growers for doing their part to draw the carbon out of the atmosphere. And I, I think it, it only makes sense. So with carbon farming, there's like three problems. The three carbons are how do you, what are some of those techniques to bring the carbon into the soil and to keep it there? But then you want to, if you're going to compensate for them, you're going to have to measure it. And then then the last is how are you going to compensate it? How are you going to measure it? And so therefore, if you're going to compensate, how are you going to, you know, so it's, it's kind of a threefold thing. And um, I think it's going to take um, very innovative companies to address those things. But I think we'll also have to have changes in public policy to make sure that carbon sequestration is something that's important. Yeah, and somewhere woven in there is also this topic of resiliency and crop growth and, you know, yields and, and all of those important things for the agriculture community. What what interesting things are being done in, in that area in terms of innovation and clean technology? So when we talk about resiliency, I think about, um, you know, growers, we talk about them saying that it's really important to have a higher yield from one year to the next because, you know, that's where their profit is and, you know, we want to feed more people, that sort of thing. But really what growers are, I think, very much concerned with today is that they need to make it through that season. And with climate change, you don't know, you know, from one season to the next whether or not you're going to have a sudden drought or you're going to have flooding so you can't get into the field. So some of the technologies that are addressing this resiliency to unexpected climate events. A lot of them have to do with breeding for, for example, for sudden drought. So um, using modern breeding techniques or um, machine learning to help you understand that or the sensors to learn about the different kinds of seeds that are out there. Using these modern breeding techniques to create or to be able to develop plants and crops that are resistant to drought. So that's, that's one example of, of what I think about with resiliency. And, you know, you can be doing breeding or you can be using this CRISPR gene editing approach. And so primarily it is trying to look for and develop these kind of crops that will be able to withstand these challenges that are thrown at it. We always think about summer is going to be hot and dry or hot and wet or whatever it is. But with changing climate, the plant has to be able to adapt to sudden changes like that. It's been said that companies don't own their brands, right? Consumers do. So where is the consumer and, and even dietary issues in, in all of this? Yeah, so the consumer and the consumer driving what's happening in ag is a really fairly new trend. And, well maybe in the last 10 years or so. And um, one of the things I look forward to as I develop these panels for the summit is to learn more about that because I don't know really a lot about uh, what's happening with the consumer and what drives them and how companies think about that. But certainly companies do think about it. I mean, a a clear example is the organic movement. Um, That particular movement was started driven by consumers and now 
you know, you have organic brands and you have large companies that have organic sectors. And that was kind of a development in response to the consumer. But I think we're going to see more and more of that here as consumers are now worried about the environmental footprint, how their food is grown, and they want to know more about it. um, And they want to make socially responsible choices. And so that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is the nutrition. In the changing climate, there's literature that suggests that nutrition aspects of plants are going to change. Um, So there are some groups and companies and researchers that are trying to understand how the nutrition changes within the food, say, in a higher carbon environment. And so, you know, if you can understand that, then you can maybe modify a crop so um, that you can have uh, a better or the same nutrition as you had previously. And I think the other thing we're going to be looking at is trends, say, for plant-based proteins. Um, so you you look at your alternative proteins of these plant-based burgers. We're going to have to start thinking about how do we breed the soybeans, for example, so that they'll have the right protein profile. I mean, that's one one way we need to be thinking about the dietary aspects if we're going to be using more and more of um, plant-based proteins. This sounds like there are amazing opportunities, both in terms of ag tech contributing to, you know, the overall clean tech economy, but also job opportunities and um, career choices for um, students and professionals that are looking to contribute to this particular area of, of clean tech. So in just in closing, what's around the corner in ag tech? What can you tell us that um, gets you excited? I think we're going to see more animal agriculture. Uh, I think we're going to see more digital agriculture applied toward animal agriculture. So yes, we have this trend toward plant-based proteins. And I think the animal groups are going to start saying, okay, so how do we raise beef and pork in a more environmentally sustainable way? So I think we're going to see more of animal ag coming to the forefront. The other thing I think we're going to see more of is vertical integration. Right now, growers will take their output to a a Cargill or another company and then it gets distributed. But I think we're going to see more and more what we call vertical integration where the grower goes directly to the seller who goes directly to the consumer. And I think that's going to aid a lot more in the transparency for consumers as they want to understand where their food is coming from. So there's some novel ideas in that area right now as well. Well, Suzanne, this has been terrific. We would love to have you back to maybe take a deeper dive into some of these areas in ag tech. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. Between blue tech and ag tech, clean tech innovations are reshaping what is possible across so many industries. And while our clean tech economy is growing and innovating, there is much to learn from others around the world. For perspective on global initiatives and what motivates the next-gen workforce, students, we spoke with Dr. Greg Ganji, a professor and associate director of the Clean Technology and Innovation Program at the UNC Institute for the Environment. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Kirsten. I'm glad to be on uh, the podcast. This is a very exciting topic in terms of what clean tech is, but more importantly, sort of who who is it impacting? And your work with students, 
you really do get that um, pulse of what's interesting to them and really what motivates students today uh, in terms of careers they want to go toward. So what can you share with us about what's interesting students these days? Okay, well, students these days are interested in developing careers with impact. They recognize that their generation is facing unique challenges on issues like climate change, decarbonizing the economy, growing enough food to feed a planet that's going to reach in their lifetime 9 and maybe 10 billion people, and to do that in a way that doesn't overwhelm the environment. And in, at a time also when standards of living are going up, so people are moving up the food chain, wanting to eat more meat around the world. Students recognize that we're facing unique challenges that the world has never faced before. And when they think of careers these days, a lot of them want to find rewarding careers, not only that pay well, but more importantly, that will allow them to contribute to solving a lot of these urgent issues. Can you describe for us what clean technology encompasses? How broad is it? And are we thinking about um, all of the things that go within clean tech? I think very broadly about clean tech. Um, and if you look at clean tech clusters around the world, the definition really is either very focused or it's broader. So a uh, big question is often where to put food. And to me, since food is such an important factor about how humans interact with the environment, that I, for me, anything relating to food falls under clean tech. And with regards to food, people often ask me, well, how does ag tech fit under clean tech if, if, if ag's not organic? To me, any technology that's helping us produce more food and doing so in a more sustainable way than predecessor technologies, that is clean technology. Doesn't mean that overnight food production systems will become sustainable, but anything that's pushing the needle in the right direction, to me, falls under the clean tech umbrella. It seems like there's a lot of momentum for collaboration, not only in North Carolina, but uh, throughout the Southeast. What are you seeing among industry and various universities that are helping to not only drive innovation, but also frame entire economies? Yeah, I think there's a, a growing desire to find new ways to work together, create new models of public-private partnerships. Um, the United States has been a very innovative country for a long time, but now when you look around the world, you see that other countries are developing new models to accelerate innovation, and that often universities in the private sector and other countries are more tightly connected. Sometimes there might be an intermediary organization, like in Germany, the Fraunhofer, that helps build a connection between academia and the private sector. I'm interested, and I think a lot of people are interested in how we can think of new models to, to build these connections to just accelerate uh, the pace at which we're unleashing innovation with. And what are some of those aspects of the Fraunhofer model that stick out for you as something we should be thinking about? Well, uh, a lot of the researchers there only get a small percentage of their money uh, from state salary. Uh, the bulk of their money uh, comes from getting uh, research grants. 
And um, something that we don't see a lot of in a university setting is kind of a relationship where a lot of those grants are coming from industry, where you have people, applied scientists, taking ideas to industry, uh, often directly and saying, We've, we think we have something that could really benefit your company. And working with that company then to bring that new idea to marketplace fruition. Uh, in that setting, it also works the opposite. Sometimes, uh, especially small and mid-sized enterprises that don't have a deep research bench might take a research question to scientists there. They'll pay for a solution, but uh, these are like scientist consultants that are helping small and mid-sized companies with their R&D um, issues. It's part of the reason why in uh, Germany they have something called the Mittelstand. These are small and mid-sized companies, and they're the real powerhouse of the German economy, which is they're the reason why Germany is such a powerful exporting uh, company. And what people often don't realize is they have this behind-the-scenes support from these research institutes like Fraunhofer. So it sounds like we really need a Fraunhofer here. That would be great. Uh, <laughs> it would be really great to pioneer an American version of, of Fraunhofer in, in RTP. And it's that public-private partnership model? Yes. It, it provides the way to connect um, cutting-edge research to industry. It sounds like something that we could absolutely use here. I mean, we have typical accelerators and incubators, um, but this sounds like it's it's quite different. Yes, it would be a really interesting part of uh, our innovation ecosystem to try something like that here. I think it's important when I think about clean tech and I think about this region, um, the U.S. has been really polarized around environmental issues for a long time. Uh, a lot of people have often thought of environmental issues as requiring a sacrifice, that we can either have a uh, clean environment or a strong economy, but the two don't go together. I think what's so great about clean technology is it shows how the two values can be married together. Um, and it can get us past some of the partisan divide that's been really plaguing this society. And by marrying a strong economy with a clean environment, I think perhaps we can bring all elements of our society together to build a better world. Yeah, and we can all get behind that for sure. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you for being on the show. And we look forward to uh, having you on again very soon. Thank you very much, Kirsten. I'd love for you to join me again. So please take a moment to like and subscribe to this podcast. We would like to give a special thanks to the following companies for making this podcast possible and for their commitment to clean tech innovation. Strata Solar, Scott Madden, Cypress Creek Renewables, SunGrow, Cherokee, Lee Moore Capital, and the UNC School of Government Environmental Finance Center. I'm Kirsten Williams from the Clean Tech and Innovation Program at the Institute for the Environment at UNC Chapel Hill.